Um, but again, Happy New Year. This is the first Sunday of 2024. It's the first Sunday that we are meeting. Is anybody feeling good about the year? Who's feeling good about the year, right? Maybe people are starting new jobs. Maybe people, like my best man has moved up to Joburg, so my best friend is back here. Cape Town has mountains and oceans, but not my best man, so <laughs> take that, Cape Town. Um, so maybe you're feeling good about this year. Maybe you're feeling a bit nervous about this year because it's an election year. You know, there's a lot of change that we are anticipating for this year, and there's a lot of momentum that comes around New Year's, and we often make New Year's resolutions, right? So yesterday, myself and Tommy made a resolution to do a warrior race on the 28th of September. It is happening, so I have to train now. We have to train for that. But has anyone here made a New Year's resolution? Maybe a New Year's resolution was to go to church more, so check. Um, but shout out some resolutions to me. Tell me. Tell me something. Exercise. Sorry? Marathon, okay, full one, okay. The money, what, to give more money, oh, yeah, nice, that's a good resolution. <laughs> to tithe more, awesome. <laughs> Any other resolutions? Has anybody already broken a resolution? I had that lemon meringue yesterday, so like it's over already. Um, nobody broken some resolutions yet? Is it still too early? We're only six days in? Okay, well, there's an excitement and energy around a new year, and... I think what that has to do with, because I mean, like, the, you don't really change, do you? But I think it's the novelty of the season. It's the promise of something new. You know, it's like the flowers are blooming and spring is coming. You always feel good around spring because you're coming out of winter and now you can wear a t-shirt at night. It's great. And I think there's always something about newness that feels great. And there's this momentum that we feel and it empowers us to feel like we can actually make real change in our lives. Hallelujah. Amen. And with that, obviously comes New Year's resolution. So I've seen this trend on social media called in and out, you know? Not the burgers, but what are things you're bringing into your life and what are things you're taking out of your life for the new year? And I didn't really make one for myself because I don't really do any New Year's resolutions, but for the purpose of this message, I've made my very own in and out list. So in, first, PlayStation 5. <laughs> this is the year, please. Asking my wife, this is the year. Early night, because, you know, you don't want to be up too late. I'm struggling to get my, my sleeping pattern back. Read one book every month. You know, I can, still, I can still make that if I read a book in January. And then run a half marathon. That's also one of my goals this year. No, not now. It's for the whole year. It's not, it's not the, the new week resolution. It's the, the new year resolution. And then out is busyness, Right? I want to be interruptible. I don't want to be so busy that I don't have time to stop and, and love the people that God loves. Um, clutter. I don't want to be materialistic and hold on to things too much. Like maybe one day I'll wear the shirt. No, I haven't worn it in two years. It needs to go. Doom scrolling. Oh my gosh. The holiday somehow got me and you can just be scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and watching four-wheel drive videos the whole day. People renovating their old Toyotas. And obviously, with that comes screen time. I know that's a bit of a contradiction with my PS5, but everything in moderation, right? <laughs> so New Year's resolutions have been along for as long as I can remember. Growing up, there were always New Year's resolutions, you know, even when I was a kid. But as a kid, I never really made them because I was a kid, right? But it was a given. We all, I always thought that, oh, you know what? New Year's resolutions are a thing. Like, everyone makes them. But there's actually quite a rich history around New Year's resolutions, and I believe that it's a practice that we can actually learn quite a lot from. So the first recorded people to make any form of pledges for a new year 
were the ancient Babylonians. And this was around 4,000 years ago. They were the first recorded civilization, as I said, to hold celebrations around that start, but there were a few key differences to the way that we celebrated. So firstly, um, their new year began around March, okay? Um, and this coincided with the new planting season for their crops. So it was at the beginning of their farming season. And obviously they wanted to do that and they, they had a 12-day festival called Akitu. And during this festival, they planted crops. They either crowned a new king or re-pledged their allegiance to the current king. And they also made a promise to repay all of their debts, right? All of their debts. So this celebration was a time of renewal. And they believed that the gods would look favorably upon them and their produce and therefore their livelihoods if they kept those pledges. Does that make sense? Cool. So then we move forward a bit to ancient Rome in about 46 BC. So ancient Rome, they also had this tradition of making pledges at the start of a new year. And what you notice is that these practices were deeply spiritual for them. It wasn't just to lose weight or to get a PlayStation 5. They were deeply spiritual, right? So ancient Rome, uh, in 46 BC, Julius Caesar was in power, and he actually moved the new year from March to the 1st of January. The reason why he did this is because there was a Roman god in their, I forgot the word, there was a pantheon, thank you, thank you, Tim, um, named Janus. It was Afrikaans who would be named Janus. Um, but Janus had two faces, and he had one face that would look into the future and one face that would look back into the presence. So for Julius Caesar and the Romans, they believed that this God um, would be the bridge and would um, allow them to pass safely into the new year with blessing, right? Because he had one foot in the present, one foot in the past. He was the guy that would get you safely across. So in both ancient Babylon and ancient Rome, the, the New Year's revolutions were deeply spiritual. They had nothing to do with learning how to bake, but they had everything to do with honoring their gods, paying off their debts, and returning borrowed farming equipment, if that was what they had to do. In ancient times, the New Year's pledges affected the very, very fabric of the society in which they lived, right? There was a lot of tradition and honor around it. Now, of course, the Christians had to get in on that action, right? And I'm glad we did. But um, in the 1700s, around 1750, John Wesley, great name, started what is known as the Covenant Renewal Service. It was essentially a New Year's Eve church gathering where your church leader would guide you through pre-written prayers and messages that focus on repentance and renewing your dedication to loving and serving God for the coming year. It's not saying, oh Lord, I need to, re like I've lost my salvation, I need to come back to you. It's saying, I may have wandered, my eyes may be on different things, but in this moment now, I'm rededicating my efforts and desires to you, Lord. And it's a very beautiful tradition. I considered actually just doing that as my whole sermon, but I think it would have been a bit jarring, so baby steps. Um, but it's this beautiful tradition of, of um, prayer, and it's a tradition of, uh, sorry, let me backtrack. Here we have a prayer meeting before the service, and then we go into a service, right? But that kind of mixed both of them. So there was prayer and preaching kind of in the same service, and the leader would, would walk you through. And it was beautiful because I read through it, and I was quite astounded because it seems like whatever wayward path we'd be on, that service was specifically um, created to pull you back and point you towards God's presence and purpose for your life. So I took a little piece of it, and we are going to 
read through this, right? So there's a section where I will read as your leader, and there's a section that will come up that says people. Where it says people, I need you to say, I need you to say it. Okay, can you do that for me? Can I get an amen? Okay, so this part that I'm reading is, is part of the confession section of the service. And bear with me, it will all tie together now. It will all make sense. Okay, so we're going to start off. We now confess to you our sins. Please forgive us for the poverty of our worship, for the selfishness of our prayers, for our inconsistency and unbelief, for the ways we neglect fellowship and your grace, for our hesitation to tell others about Christ, for the ways we deceive others. Forgive us that we have been unwilling to overcome evil with good and that we have not been ready to carry our cross. Forgive us that we have not allowed your love to work through us to help others and that we have not made their suffering our own. Forgive us for the times we instead, for the, those times when instead of working for unity, we made it hard for others to live with us because of our lack of forgiveness, inconsiderate judgment, and quick criticism. Forgive us also for these sins that we silently confess to you now. Imagine if that was a springboard for your New Year's resolutions. That that is the back, like your New Year's resolutions came off of the back of such a prayer of repentance. It could be said that today our resolutions, especially in the church, are more secular than they are societal or religious. These are the top 10 most common New Year's resolutions that we get. Exercise more, lose weight, get organized, learn a new hobby or skill, live life to the fullest, save more money, spend less money, quit smoking, spend more time with family and friends, travel more. Number 10, read more. Oh, that was mine. <laughs> um, so this is what it, what it tends to look like, right? But my encouragement and what I want you to walk away with today is that I would like you to still use your New, your new Year's resolution as a tool for spiritual growth, not just secular improvement. Can we do that? So how do we actually walk through this as a church? How do we go about setting New Year's resolutions in a, in a spiritual sense? Well, I think firstly, we need to understand that New Year's resolutions don't exist in a vacuum. I'm carrying around more weight than I would like to, therefore my resolution is to lose weight in the new year, right? So there's sort of a condition that you're not satisfied with that you would like to change. So that led me through quite a bit of prayer, asking God what we could do as the church, not just our church, but the, the capital C, the broader church in general, in Gauteng, in South Africa, globally, what we could do this year, what we could set right that we might not have been doing in the previous years, right? So let's dig into some scripture. This is a very meaty passage. We are going to James 2, verse 14 to 26, if you have your Bibles, I'll give you a moment. It is titled, Faith Without Good Deeds is Dead. From verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, bless you, 
Bless you again. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish, can't you see that faith without, deed, without good deeds is useless? Verse 21, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous. God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone, and yeah. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. What I appreciate about James is that he's very straightforward in his writing. He doesn't pull any punches. And so they say the book of James is probably the easiest book to understand, but it's also the most difficult and challenging to actually implement in your own life because he doesn't pull any punches. So let's unpack this passage and uh, see how we can use it to make some New Year's resolutions, right? So we're gonna go from verse 14 to 16 again, and I'm, gonna have, I'm not gonna read it again because we just read it, um, but it's on screen so you can refer to it, but it says, um, well, I'm saying, James starts off quite strong here, um, asking a pretty straightforward question. Christian, what is your faith if you don't show it? What good is your faith if you don't show it? Is my faith any good if I don't show it? If I don't show my faith, how does it benefit anybody else? Is it faith if it's only good for me but not good for other people, right? So he's asking quite these, these quite lofty questions and he's putting forward this notion that um, your faith needs to benefit other people, especially those in need. Um, so let me just use this as an example because I'm a big car guy, but let's say after the service you came to me and you're like, Wesley, I've got this BMW E46 M3, you know, like it's in pristine condition. I've got it at my house and you really need to see it. And me, I'm like, um, you know, I'm taking my wife on a date, but afterwards I'll come over and I'll have a look at this car. And I come to your house this afternoon and I'm like, this is, this is a beautiful car. You know, I, this is the car that was on Need for Speed when I was growing up. And like, you know, I'm like touching the car. I'm looking at the lights. I'm like sitting, I'm feeling that plush leather. And then I'm like, okay, cool, pop the hood. I wanna see this V6 engine, you know? And then I go and I open the bonnet and there's no engine. And it's like, oh man, but you told me your car is the fastest car on the street. You told me you have a fast car. And, and I realized that I don't, that, that you've lied to me because your car doesn't have an engine. So now this car that is designed to drive and take people from A to B very quickly and in style and in a way that invokes envy in people like Wesley is nothing more than an empty shell. It's an ornament in your house. And so what good is a car without an engine? And what good is faith without action? 
James answers that question in verse 17. He said, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone um, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? How can I actually see it? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? I think the point he's trying to make here that for, for the Jewish reader in this time, the very core, the very essence, the very fundamental belief that you would need to have at the foundation of your belief system is that there is one God, and he created the universe. And he's saying, you're saying that you believe that there is one God. Well, the demons know that too. And the outcomes of your faith are the exact same because there's no good works coming from it. I'm not saying we're demons, but like the net effect that we have can't be the same. You know what I'm saying? And he uses some really strong words here to describe faith without deeds, dead and useless. And I think when, when such um, strong words that evoke such strong emotions are used, we really need to take notes of them in scripture. Um, but I just wanna hone in on what James means when he speaks about good deeds or works, right? So he said good deeds as in plural. So he's left it quite open-ended for us, really. And um, from my perspective, he's describing any acts of kindness or love or generosity or anything else aimed towards loving and maintaining the dignity of God's image bearers, i.e. all of us, right? It's how we treat other people. So this can obviously happen in church, in the way we greet one another, in the way we serve one another. This can happen in church, giving someone a lift to church. These things can happen. But I, but I feel that James wants this to extend even further than that. He wants it to extend to our families. He wants it to extend to the other six days of our lives because the way we live our lives are worship. Worship isn't just singing, and we have an incredible band, and it's awesome. I love the song Banner. But worship is also the way we live our lives. So it can mean dropping off a bag of groceries for someone in need, showing up for prayer meetings, making room in your circle for more people, or it can even be the way a financial advisor helps a single mother plan for her retirement and her, her children's education. The way you do that can be worship. So these good deeds extend to every area of our life. And again, it doesn't just mean that we're serving at church once in a while. We do need volunteers, but that's not, the, that's not just the standard. You can't sit back and say, I'm a Christian and I go to church, but I keep my personal faith outside of my work. Bless you. I keep my personal faith outside of the gym. You know, when I'm in there and I'm dropping weights, I'm just swearing all the time. You know, I keep my faith outside of the gym. I keep my spiritual life outside of my working life. The people I work with don't even know that I'm a Christian. But that's not how it works because your entire life is spiritual. You have the Holy Spirit in you. There's no part of your life that isn't spiritual. The whole entire thing is spiritual. Um, Jesus has to permeate every area of your life. Our good deeds and, um, or our good works are signposts that point to our faith in Jesus. I'm not telling you that you need to pursue good works instead of placing your faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that um, you need to pursue good works in addition to placing your faith in Jesus or you're not saved. 
What I'm saying is that we are expected to good, do good deeds. This is a tongue twister. We are expected to do good deeds for the benefit of others as a result of placing our faith in Jesus. That's what it boils down to. But then it gets a bit dicey because some people have gone back and forth arguing about um, the next few verses. In this. So let me just read this really quickly. From verse 21, don't you remember that our ancestors Abraham, ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him, counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do not by faith alone. Um, says the same thing about Rahab, but this is the point of contention. Like for example, this is in the NLT. I should have put that on the slide, sorry. Um, but if you read in the ESV, it says that Abraham was justified by his actions, right? Um, and in verse 24, it says, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So if you read that just by faith, face value, you can understand why there might be a bit of content. You mean like justified by works? Hmm? Not justified by faith alone? So there's been a lot of contention about that. Um, most famously, probably Martin Luther um, has disagreed with the way James placed an emphasis on works. Like I said, in some translations, it said that they were justified by their works. And people have actually argued that what James wrote here goes against what Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, for example. People have even said that this actually goes against the gospel message because the gospel message says that we are justified by our faith alone in Christ. Same page? Sorry, it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth. A lot of semantics, isn't it? Um, and honestly, like I can really see where they're coming from, but it seems like a big contradiction on the surface. But if you dig a little deeper, they actually work hand in hand and it makes complete sense, and I hope I can explain that to you properly, so Lord help me. So a quick refresher course on what I preached about when we went through the book of Galatians, or the last part of the book of Galatians. The sermon series was called Freedom in Christ, right? Um, and so Paul was writing to a group of churches in Galatia because he had heard that their doctrine was being corrupted. So Paul established this church, he established leadership, he passed the church onto them, and he went on his merry way, and a radical group of Jews came behind him and started muddling up the doctrine of the church. Um, so basically, they were saying that the Gentiles had to observe the Jewish law in order to receive salvation. They were like, you're not circumcised. You can't be saved, buddy. You need to get circumcised to be saved. Um, and so Paul was obviously um, upset about this because they were, they were saying that it was your works and not your faith alone in Christ that ensured your salvation, right? So Paul wrote to them, and he was, he, was, he was fuming. And in chapter five, he, he lays out this beautiful um, picture of, of uh, just speaking about what it means to come out from under the law and how to live in the freedom that Christ has given you. And online, the picture should be up as well. Um, but on the left side of this picture, we have legalism, right? And he is saying that when you, when you are living under the law, you are living under legalism and it is impossible for anybody to keep the law. So you're subjecting yourself to the curse. And then on the other side of that, in the middle, you have liberty. There is freedom that you have been called to. So don't subject yourself to the law. Actually just, oh, <laughs> um, just live a life full of faith in Jesus Christ. 
because he is the Messiah, right? But then you had some people on the other side who took that freedom a bit too far and they're like, yo, my works don't have an impact on my salvation. I'm just gonna sin a little bit. Um, and Paul was like, guys, 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 use your freedom to love one another. Don't use your freedom to sin. So this is the argument, and, and this is where people usually get upset about this passage in James, right? Because Paul is saying we've just gone from legalism to liberty, and now you're telling me again that I need to be justified by, by my works. Well, I'm not really telling you that. There's two simple reasons as to why Paul and James are not contradicting each other here, right? Um, this is, obviously, you can do a deeper study, but this is just... Um, yeah, two quick reasons. Firstly, they are writing to different audiences for different reasons, right? Paul was writing to the Gentiles in order to save them from Jewish legalism. That's why he emphasized faith in Christ and not being, uh, it's, not your, it's not your works that justify you, right? On the other hand, James was defending Jews from the Gentile license, Hence, his points on saying, yes, you have faith in Christ, but don't abandon your good works, right? Does that make sense? The second thing is that they mean different things by works. Paul was speaking directly to the act of observing Jewish law. And James was speaking about our actions that come as a result of placing our faith in Jesus. And so he deals with this in his book, right? So it's things like um, controlling your tongue, not showing favoritism to others, um, praying for the sick, and those are just a few. These works are a result of our salvation. They're not um, works that are done in an effort to earn salvation. So legalism says that we are saved by our own works. Liberty says that we are saved without works. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> um, but the standard that James is calling us to says that we have been saved so that we can carry out good works. So Paul, who apparently was, was um, disagreeing with James, writes in Ephesians chapter two, um, verse nine to 10, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So in this passage, um, I love the fact that James uses the, the example of, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac because that is a crazy story. Let's not act like it's normal. <laughs> sacrificing your son? How would you feel if they're like, Josh, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a crazy story, right? So let me just remind you of what he says in, in um, verse 21 to 24. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happens, happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith, by faith alone. And I think in verse 24, just the key phrase is shown to be right. Shown to be right. So Abraham, and obviously in this, in, in this passage as well, Rahab, were, were proclaimed just by what they did. But as you see in verse 22, Abraham's faith was already there. Before he acted, his faith was already there. And his faith was just demonstrated by the choices that he made. 
Paul tells us that it is Jesus who makes us just before God. And James is saying that we then show ourselves as just to a broken world by the way in which we live. So how do you know a lemon tree is a lemon tree? <laughs> by its fruits. <laughs> There's so many moments I was trying to hear one thing, but I couldn't. How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? By its fruits, right? How do you know that you have an active and complete faith? By your fruit. Amen? And there's this passage in Hebrews 11 that has stuck with me for so long that speaks about Abraham's faith in this moment. But I love that it goes into a bit more detail and speaks about his internal reasoning in that moment. So Hebrews 11, verse 17 to 19 says, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Oh man, I love this passage of scripture because they use the word reason. <laughs> How do you reason this out, that you need to sacrifice your son? But Abraham, knowing that God wouldn't lie or go back on his promises, held up the facts and tried to make sense of what he had to do in that moment, right? So on one hand, Isaac was God's promise to him. Isaac was the, the son through which generations would come, right? And on the other hand, God was asking him to sacrifice that very promise, his son. So Abraham looked at both options and he reasoned. He reasoned that because God's full promise hadn't yet come to fruition, and because now God was asking him to sacrifice his son, he was like, he'll just raise him from the dead. That's what he reasoned, because he knew that God wouldn't lie or go back on his word. And for Abraham, that was the only way to uphold both God's promise and his command. And his faith was made complete because of his actions. And I love the use of the word reasoned here, because in no way, shape, or form do I believe this is reason. Um, if, if you look at it through natural eyes, that is. Um, if you look at it through natural eyes, it is tough to see any reason in it because Abraham's reason or line of logic or his train of thought is one that defines the laws of nature, right? If someone dies, they die. That's the rule. There have been exceptions, wink, wink. Um, but, but for the most part, that is the rule. Yet Abraham reasoned that God would defy death itself on behalf of his son because he had his promise and he had the commandments and he had faith in Christ. He would not have acted on that command from God to sacrifice his son if he didn't have faith already, right? And it's, I think it's something that we need a bit more of in our own lives. I think maybe we do need a bit of crazy when the world looks at us. In the sense that like we have this faith that someone who doesn't know God can't understand, right? Because our faith isn't based on the circumstances and our context, but it's actually based on God's promises and faithfulness and his character. And maybe that's what completes our faith and points towards Jesus. For example, 
who knows that God is a loving provider? Right? Then it should be easier for us to be generous when he asks us to give. Right? It can be as simple as that. In 2022, or as of 2022, 85.3% of South Africans said that they are Christian. So apparently, there are 52.8 million Christians in our country. There might be some disagreements with how they count that, granted. But that means that there are a lot of people who believe that God is God in our country. But according to the standard set in Scripture, it means that there is a lot of dead and useless faith in our nation and in our communities and in our workplaces and in our streets and in our homes. And the broken world around us continues to suffer because of it, because of our lack of good works, because of our lack of faith in Jesus. So let's set a New Year's resolution together. Oh, I should have put that slide up. Let's set a New Year's resolution together in good works, actions that come as a result of you placing your faith in Jesus. Out, dead faith. Dead faith. Could we confidently say that Abraham had faith if he didn't obey God in that moment? Because there would just be that disbelief like, mm, Lord, I don't trust you in this, right? Bit of dead faith in that situation. But let this be the in and out list that number one, looks completely different to what the world does, but number two, marks our lives as a church this year. And this isn't the Vision Sunday, but can this be on our hearts for the year? That the world, I mean, when Fernando preached here, I think it was last time or the first time he preached here, Fernando from Community Ministries, um, he asked the band to sing a song at the end of the service. And the line from that song, I remember, because it kind of sounded like a Lord of the Rings song, but it went, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. The world will know that we're Christians, but this is not so that we can earn salvation. We have salvation. Lord knows I'm not good enough to be standing up here, but it is Christ in me that produces good works that point back to him. So let 2024 be the year that your faith comes alive. Too many of us in this room are in the same place we were five years ago. Too many of us have friends and family and colleagues and neighbors who don't even know that we're Christian. You know, I've, I've had friends from university from my time at UCT who've reached out to me when they've seen like a reel on social media of me preaching or something. And they were like, preaching? <laughs> I would have never guessed. Whew. And that hits me hard every single time. It hits me hard every single time because there were people who I knew in university, the same people who are reaching out, who I knew needed Jesus. I knew they needed to know the truth, but the life I was living was not proclaiming that truth to them. And I repented and I said, Lord, please, never again can someone be in close proximity to me and not at least know the truth and not know Jesus and not see him in the way I love them in my flawed ways. But Lord, never, never let that happen again because I don't wanna waste my years on this earth. 
I don't want to do that. Because if good works are the fruit of faith in Jesus, it is that very fruit that will begin to nourish the wounded and broken around us and begin leading them to Jesus. Now, I can't tell you exactly what the good works will look like in your life. We have different spaces that we occupy. We have different contexts. We have different family members. We have, there's a lot of differences and similarities. But the one thing that is for sure is that the good works that we produce will always reflect the heart of Father God. And as Christians, what is our goal? Our goal is to be more like Jesus and to make him known to the world. And this was the same goal as the first disciples. In fact, many people say that a better word to describe them would have been apprentices because they learned everything from Jesus. He didn't just teach them how to run a ministry. He taught them how to live. That's the reason why I appreciate Paul because Paul didn't, he helps me with preaching, yes, but he teaches me how to live. He teaches me how to be a good husband, how to be a good steward, not just how to emcee. That is what it means to apprentice and to imitate someone as they imitate Christ. The, the, the early disciples modeled their lives after Jesus' lives. Just read the book of Acts. They looked a lot more like Jesus than they did before in the book of Acts, right? If you look at the way they faced persecution, if you look at the way when they were in trouble, they retreated and prayed. That's exactly what Jesus did. They learned to live because they watched Jesus living. The band can come up as well. Thank you. Um, and so as Christians, that is our goal. We want to look more like Jesus to a broken world. So I know this is like, oh man, good works, what do I do? Do I give people more lifts? Do I tip more? What do I do? Um, there's a question that can get us rolling down this path, right? Down this path of actually acting on our faith because that's the call. Because I'm sure the majority of us here believe in God and believe that Jesus is the son of God and he died and he rose again for us, right? And we have faith, but maybe we just haven't been acting on our faith. So the call is to act on our faith, to not let it be silent or dead or hidden. You don't hide your lamp under a tree. You shine it in the darkness. So the question is, if Jesus was in your shoes and had your influence and your job and your car and your salary and your budget and your spouse and your friends and your workspace and your skills, your qualifications and your dot, 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 fill in the blank, what would he be doing? What would his life be looking like? What would he do with the things that he has given you? There is a prayer called uh, the Covenant Prayer, which is also the name of the song we're about to sing. Um, but the Covenant Renewal Service that I spoke about, um, part of it was repentance, the other part was dedicating your life and your year to the Lord, right? So we're gonna sing a song that Dan and the band wrote and that's how we're gonna end off today. And I think it's fitting for us to use this moment to renew our dedication to God. Um, so I'm gonna invite us all to stand in this moment, please. This message wasn't intended to make anybody feel bad. 
I'm not standing here and telling you that you have dead faith. All have fallen short, including me. But what I'm saying is that you have something inside of you that the world needs. And it's not your quirky attitude or charisma, it is Jesus in you that the world needs. So we need to start acting on our faith this year. And my prayer in 2024 is that who Jesus is and what he has done for us would seep so deeply into our hearts that everything would change. You hear the term revival being thrown around so much. And oftentimes we think it is an extended worship set, or maybe it's just a crazy amount of salvations and we, we trust for that. And sometimes it's, it's an outpouring of God's presence, but revival is also so much more personal than that. Revival is Jesus permeating every part of who I am and bringing the dead things in me back to life.